Hi everyone, it's Brendan O'Neill here with an exciting announcement. In October, we'll be doing a special live episode of the Brendan O'Neill Show. I'll be joined on stage by the legendary Rod Little. You won't want to miss this. It is part of an event called Podcast Live in London on the 5th of October, and you can join me and Rod between 2.30 and 3.30 p.m. Tickets are now available at podcastlive.com. There are two types of tickets. You can buy tickets for just the Brendan O'Neill Show, or you can buy an all-day ticket, which includes access to all the other podcasts at Podcast Live. Whichever ticket you choose, whether it's an all-day or a single show, when you go to podcastlive.com, make sure you click the link below the Brendan O'Neill Show logo, as that is the only way you can guarantee a seat for our podcast. So that's the Brendan O'Neill Show with me and Rod Little live at Podcast Live on the 5th of October. Don't miss it. There are some people on the left who have basically taken a right-wing view that certain communities have to be kowtowed to regardless of what their stand is. People on the left will call out racism in the LGBT plus community. They very rarely call out homophobia in the Muslim community. And that's double standards. And double standards do the left great damage. The public can see through it. Hello and welcome to The Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill. This is a podcast in which an esteemed guest joins me to talk about the big ideas, the bad ideas, the problems and the controversies of life in the early 21st century. In this episode, I am delighted to be joined by Peter Tatchell. Peter doesn't really need an introduction, but I'll do one anyway. He has been agitating for gay rights and human rights for more than 50 years. He was part of the Gay Liberation Front in the early 1970s and helped to organise the first ever Pride March in the UK in 1972. In the 1990s, he was a founder of Outrage, the often quite controversial queer rights group, which gained notoriety for, among other things, outing gay figures in the establishment. He was the Labour Party candidate in the Bermondsey by-election in 1983, which is widely considered to be one of the most infamous and sinister election campaigns of the 20th century, not least because of the extent of the homophobia aimed at Peter by his political opponents and much of the media. He has written widely and campaigned widely on the issue of queer rights and human rights. His protesting has taken him to many places around the world, including Russia, where he was assaulted on a pride march in 2007. He was also attacked by Robert Mugabe's bodyguards in London in 2001, when he tried to carry out a citizen's arrest on Mugabe. He is admired both by the radical left and by many on the right as well. And I hope he won't be offended if I say that he is quite possibly the only radical campaigner who has achieved national treasure status in the UK. Peter, welcome to the show. Very glad to join you. I think the first thing I have to kick off with is the 50th anniversary of the Stonewall riots, which have been a huge issue over the past month or so. And lots of the Pride marches this year have been focused on the 50th anniversary. And it seems to me as if 
in that period, in those 50 years since those people broke out of the Stonewall Bar and started fighting back against the cops, homosexuality has gone from being something that was a very risky business and could get you attacked and arrested and locked up to being one of the most coveted and celebrated identities in the West, at least. Do you think that's accurate? And if that is the case, do you think it's game over for gay rights campaigning? Well, I'd certainly agree that the LGBT plus movement and pride celebrations are probably the most successful contemporary social movement of our era. We have gone, as you said, from the margins to the mainstream, from pariah status to uh, inclusion at all levels of society, Mm. all within the space of 50 years. Uh, When you think about it, here in Britain, until 1999, Britain had by volume the largest number of anti-gay laws of any country in the world, Mm. some of them dating back centuries. Yet two decades later, we have some of the best laws. Now, I can't think of any social movement anywhere in the world that's achieved such a scale of uh, legal reform in such a short period. Mm. And you think about the pride flag, the rainbow flag, it's ubiquitous all over the world. It's probably the single most recognisable flag globally today Um, in terms of movements and and pride parades. uh, The LGBT movement exists in almost every country, Um, sometimes, of course, covertly because of the risk of state repression and mob violence. But there really hasn't been a, a social movement with such a global reach at any previous point in history. Hmm. And uh, right now, when you look at the gains being made, although there was still much to achieve, it's phenomenal to think that uh, close to 50 countries have decriminalized homosexuality in the last few decades. And it's happening all the time. And some of it is happening in the most unlikely places. You know, think a country like Uruguay had same sex marriage before the UK. Mm. Um, you know, Ecuador has just legalized same sex marriage. Um, it's, it, it's extraordinary. And the reach of this movement is truly global. And there is no parallel movement in the world today for a particular marginalized community. You mentioned there the dismantling of the huge amount of British legislation that criminalized sexual activity, uh, particularly among homosexuals. Could you just describe to us a, a bit uh, of that legislation and what it covered? So if, in the UK, um, gay sex is decriminalized in 1967. That's how most people view it. Mm. And yet you guys come along in 1972 with the first Pride March and then continue agitating really right through to today, particularly in the 80s and the 90s as well. And to some people, that would be difficult to understand. And they would probably think, well, hold on, gay sex was decriminalized in 67. Why were you carrying on? So, so what continued to exist in relation to the oppression of gay people post-1967? Well, 1967 was very partial, limited decriminalisation, which only applied to England and Wales and was not extended to Scotland until 1980 and not to Northern Ireland until 1982. And it continued to remain a criminal offence for members of the armed forces and the Merchant Navy Mm. right up until the mid-1990s. What happened in 1967 was... uh, the policy was to not prosecute um, sex between men if both were aged 21 or over and if the sexual act took place in their own home behind locked doors and windows with the curtain drawn and with no other person present in any part of the house. Mm -hmm. Meeting other gay people in public 
continued to remain a criminal offence, as did doing anything to invite, facilitate or aid and abet a homosexual act, even a lawful one. So in the years after 1967, the number of men convicted for consenting same-sex behaviour increased by 400% by 1974. And in fact, these anti-gay laws were not repealed in England and Wales until 2003, not repealed in Northern Ireland fully until uh, 2009, and not completely removed in Scotland until 2013. So in the period after 1967, an estimated at least 20,000 gay and bisexual men were convicted for behaviour that in most circumstances would not have been a crime between men and women. Mm. And that is why the Gay Liberation Front of the Mm. early 1970s and outrage from the 1990s had to continue the fight to complete that campaign for decriminalisation. Would you still see 1967 as a positive step? I mean, often the way in which it's framed is that the people who created the um, decriminalisation, the limited decriminalisation of 1967 were, you know, middle-class reformers and had quite narrow ambitions. And then along come the upstarts of the Gay Liberation Front in the early 1970s to demand a far more radical questioning of um, sexual morality. Do you see that as a, do you you think there was a break between those two things? Or do you see 1967 as in some way giving rise to the more radical aspirations of the people of the 70s, 80s and 90s? I think all of us in the Gay Liberation Front recognise the partial limited nature of Mm. 1967. But the fact that it was positive, in the sense that it removed the um, major threat of criminalisation, providing you stuck to those very rigorous guidelines of the law. And that enabled a lot more LGBT plus people to come out because they didn't any longer so readily fear the policeman's knock at the door. Yeah. And so when the Gay Liberation Front was launched in the UK in 1970, um, literally hundreds then thousands of people came out because they felt there was a safe space. The police could not easily get them provided they took precautions. Mm. You know, the blackmail of the past was much, much less likely, as well as prosecution. And I think that is the pattern worldwide. Decriminalisation is the basis to allow an open movement to emerge and then to go on and campaign for other things. So the Gay Liberation Front agenda was about a continuation of the campaign for law reform, but also broadened Mm. the LGBT plus agenda much wider about relationship and sex education in schools that was inclusive for people of sexual orientation and gender identity, different from the mainstream, a battle we're still fighting today, to um, ensure that the police operated in a non-homophobic way, that um, the raids and arrests for holding hands in the street or kissing ended, plus challenging the media, the church, and public institutions like local authorities mm. who would often refuse to support the local ratepayers and taxpayers uh, who were LGBT. Mm. So you talk about the success of the gay rights movement and the pride movement, and as you say, it is arguably the most successful social movement of modern times, particularly in the West. I, I want to ask you about the potential downsides to that. So everyone, I'm pretty much everyone can agree that the liberation of gay people uh, from 
onerous legislation and persecution and discrimination is a positive and a great gain for humanity. But at the same time, you talk about the ubiquitous nature of the pride flag, and you've written in the past about the creeping intervention of capitalism into pride marches and the way in which pride has become almost a kind of um, conformist capitalist backed movement which seems to be quite different from the first Pride March of 1972 and certainly from some of the protests and ideas of the gay liberation front of the early 1970s as well. So do you still feel like that? Do you you think that Pride as a movement has potentially lost its way? Well, I think the mainstreaming of the LGBT plus movement and community and the mainstreaming of Pride events is a good positive thing. Mm But it does feel now that Pride as we know it is very far removed from the first Pride March, which I helped organise in 1972 in London. Um, back then, there were no corporate sponsors, no floats, you know, <laughs> there was no commercialization. And you contrast that today mm. where it's true that to have big Pride events, you do need to fund it. And I've got nothing in principle against corporate sponsorship, providing those corporate sponsors are ethical that they're not donating to anti-gay politicians or behind the scenes backing anti-gay legislation and providing it doesn't overshadow uh, the LGBT grassroots community organisations, which are the core of Pride. Mm. And I think with London Pride, um, the organisers are caught in a bind. They have to get funding and so therefore they go to corporate sponsors. They have to get funding because the Mayor of London... Westminster City Council and the Metropolitan Police impose onerous restrictions and charges upon them. So, for example, in the late 1990s, over 100,000 people marched in the Pride Parade in London. Today, those three city authorities have imposed an artificial 30,000 limit, which means that tens of thousands of people who want to march are not allowed to. That's against the whole ethos of Pride. Mm -hmm. And then on top of that... You know, the corporate sponsors are the ones with the money, so they have the most extravagant and expensive floats that the community groups can't afford. So they dominate the parade. Mm. And I think that is something that we really do need to address. Now, many people will say, well, isn't it good that the corporate sponsors are there? They're showing their support. I'm sure that many of the LGBT in-groups within those corporations are well-motivated. But I think their corporate bosses probably do support Pride, but they also see it as a great marketing opportunity. Yeah. You know, it, the research shows that LGBT plus consumers are trendsetters, that if you can make an impact in the LGBT plus community, your product will zing mm-hmm. forward. And so I think that's the way a lot of corporates see Pride. It's a combination of altruism and naked commercial self-interest. You talk about the corporate sponsorship of Pride and you explain very well why that might be necessary because the um, you need money to organise a huge parade like this and other state actors are not forthcoming in, in, in allowing this event to go ahead. But then aside from the corporate sponsorship of the march and the day itself – when you see things like, uh, as I, you know, I was in New York recently and every single bank you walk past, like Bank of America and all the others, had huge pride 
displays on their front windows. And you see the same with hedge fund groups and huge political organizations. Um, and, you know, even drinks companies like Budweiser and various other uh, uh, groups, which if we are honest, exist in order to make a profit and really nothing much more than that. When you see, you know, outside of the Pride March itself, um, capitalist institutions and corporations embracing the Pride flag, does that make you think that there's a pinkwashing element going on here? And, and what we have is a situation where, uh, for some reason, Pride now lends itself to the renewal, the moral re renewal, I guess, of uh, 21st century capitalism. Is that something that you think gay rights activists should be concerned about? I don't think the Pride organisers um, are committed to the renewal of no, 21st no. century capitalism, but they are going along with that corporate agenda. I think it's very, very clear that um, there are some very big corporations that have recently been exposed as supporting Pride events in the United States, but at the same time giving to anti-gay politicians. I mean, General Electric, for example, which I believe is sponsoring uh, Pride Kumru in Wales, um, they, uh, in the United States, have donated, I think, over £1.3 million to politicians who oppose right. LGBT equal rights. Now, I don't think that's conscionable or acceptable. Mm. I think um, if Pride organisations are going to accept money and sponsorship, they have to do so with an ethical you know, mind. It's the same with the way in which, um, you know, British aerospace uh, has been a sponsor or supporter of Pride, you know, when they're selling weapons abroad that mm. are killing innocent civilians. Or uh, look at British Airways, which is implicated in the deportation of LGBT plus asylum seekers. I think a line has to be drawn that if people are going to sponsor Pride, if corporations are going to sponsor Pride, they have to meet certain ethical standards. And I think some Pride organisers have been too careless in ensuring that. You're listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. If you like this podcast and Spike's other podcasts, and also the articles and essays that Spiked publishes every day, please think about giving us a donation. Spike's content is free and we want to keep it free and donations really help us to do that. Head over to Spike's donation page now at www.spiked-online.com. I want to ask you about the broader shift as I see it, and I, I, I think you and others do as well, a broader shift in relation to gay politics from liberation to equality. Now, we can all agree that liberation and equality are pretty good things, um, but there has been a palpable shift away from the Gay Liberation Front, which, as its name suggests, was about demanding freedom, liberation, autonomy, the right to live as you pleased without the persecution of the moral majority towards uh, a culture in which gay rights activism seems to be almost singularly devoted to equality and often within the institutions that already exist. For example, the institution of marriage or um, the institution of, of work in corporations or whatever else it might be. So one thing that you wrote about the Gay Liberation Front was that it was a, a glorious, enthusiastic and often chaotic mix of anarchists, hippies, left-wingers, feminists, liberals, and counterculturalists. 
And you talk about the Gay Liberation Front having a radical idealism, free not just from homophobia, but from the whole sex shame culture. And you say that you were sexual liberationists and social revolutionaries, which I think is a really good description of the Gay Liberation Front. But it strikes me that some of that's been lost. The, the liberationist and the revolutionary aspect of that early gay politics has been lost and has been taken over by, I guess you could refer to it as the kind of middle class uh, gay rights activism, which is concerned with the right to marry, the right to adopt children and so on. Do you think that's an accurate description of what's happened? And do you think it's a problem? Well, of course, any discrimination against LGBT plus people is wrong and to be deplored and also to be campaigned and overturned. You know, that is why I think it's really important that we do and did challenge the ban on same-sex marriage, the ban on LGBT plus people in the armed forces and so on, but without sanctioning those institutions. Right. So the Gay Liberation Front held, and I still hold today, the view that we need a critical, sceptical, discerning attitude towards the laws, the values, and institutions of mainstream society. Mm. Whereas most LGBT plus organizations today seem to say, well, whatever straights have got, we want to. Right. But there's no critique yeah. of, of, of what straight people have. And the fact that straight people themselves may not have a good deal on some issues, like, for example, relationship and sex education in schools. Of course, we want it to be LGBT plus inclusive, but let's recognize that certainly until very recently, uh, and perhaps even now, it ain't that brilliant for straight kids either. Mm. So I've never really been a great enthusiast of gay-specific legislation. Mm. Um, I've always felt that we should try and reframe um, or reposition LGBT plus issues within the context of a broader human rights agenda in ways that can create a community of interest between LGBT people and those who are straight and cisgender as well. And in the process, build a stronger, broader alliance. Mm. But the essence of what you're saying is absolutely true. In the days of the Gay Liberation Front, the words equality never passed our lips. Mm. We were not interested in equal rights within what we saw as a fundamentally unjust and flawed status quo. We want to transform society. We want to create a new society where there could be liberation for everyone. Yeah. And that meant questioning the laws, the values, and the institutions that already existed. I think, sadly, that's been largely lost. Mm. And you're right, you know, the recent campaigns around same-sex marriage and parenting rights have been some of the dominant ones, um, very heteronormative, um, very uncritical, whereas myself and others have argued, for example, on marriage, yes, we, we, we support the campaign for equal marriage. In fact, myself and Outrage began the campaign way back in 1992, but we also had a critical attitude towards marriage. You know, we shared the feminist critique and uh, we came up with what I've since subsequently called the idea of a civil commitment pact as an alternative to both marriage and civil partnerships. And of course, in essence, civil partnerships is marriage light yeah. <laughs> by another name. Now, this proposal that I conceived uh, would um, try and create a more democratic, flexible um, egalitarian model of relationship recognition and rights for those who want it. So under this system, anyone could nominate any significant other in their life as their next of kin and beneficiary. So it might be a partner or it might be, if they're single, uh, a favorite niece or nephew, a best friend, 
or care or whatever. Um, and this would end the discrimination or inheritance law, which penalizes single people. You know, why should a single person who has leaves an estate when they die, why should the recipient of that estate pay a whacking great inheritance mm. tax when if they're in a relationship, their partner wouldn't? And then when it comes to people in relationships, what I propose is that people should be able to pick a mix from a menu of rights and responsibilities to create a, a tailor-made partnership agreement suited to their particular circumstances. Mm. So it's, it's based on the recognition that in modern societies, there's a huge variety of relationships and lifestyles. You know, some partners live together, others live apart, some share their finances, others maintain financial independence, some have kids, some don't. Under this system, you could create a tailor-made partnership agreement uh, bespoke for your particular needs. And I mm. think that's, that's, to me, the way to go. I think your description of the aims and aspirations of the Gay Liberation Front is, is very well made. And it strikes me that that's why the word radical is, is quite aptly applied to the Gay Liberation Front, because radical, as the, as the word suggests, means getting to the root of society. So it's not just about having a few more equality laws, but it's about questioning the very roots of the society you live in, in terms of the institution of marriage or the institution of the family and various other ways in which social life is organized. I wonder if one of the issues faced in the arena of gay rights and gay people's futures is that there has been a shift from a focus on liberation to a focus on validation. So you have these early uh, kind of post-1960s movements, which are very much focused on the right to live as you choose without persecution or even judgment or certainly not kind of legal attack. Um, so you have this kind of demand for autonomy and then you fast forward to more recent times and there seems to be this demand for validation, for, for the validation of the state via marriage, for example, or the validation of the moral majority via the kind of um, mainstreaming of the pride movement. And I think that doesn't only go for the gay rights movement. I think there are lots of 1960s, 1970s social movements which have shifted from a focus on a kind of countercultural demand for freedom at any cost towards a kind of more therapeutic request for recognition and, you know, you have to support my lifestyle. Do you think that's a fair description of what's happened with gay politics more broadly? I suppose so, but I don't see anything wrong with seeking right. respect and affirmation. Now, I'd apply that equally to women and ethnic minorities, you know. Um, the right to respect and affirmation, I think, is, is part and parcel of the process of social acceptance. Mm. And changing the laws is one thing, but clearly not enough. You know, we need to change cultural attitudes and values so people see um, a sense of social solidarity with others who are different. If I can row back a bit, I mean, one of the things that influenced me in going beyond mere equality was the experience of the black civil rights movement in America, which was very much hinged mm -hmm. upon, um, you know, formal legal equality, ending segregation, ensuring voting rights for people, uh, African-Americans in the deep South. But once those battles were won, the movement fragmented and dissipated. Yet here we are today, um, you know, all these decades later, and there is informal segregation in many parts of America. You know, on the whole, um, black people earn much less than their white counterparts. There are still shocking levels of racism 
uh, epitomized by the you know, repeated shooting dead of black people, often unarmed black people by the police without due cause. I think it shows how flawed the equality gender really is. Yeah. And I could apply the same to the women's movement. You know, women won, you know, the Sex Discrimination Act right back in the 70s, subsequent Equal Pay Act and so on. But still today, no one's going to pretend that women are equal, that there are still, there are still glass ceilings, that still women earn on average less than their male colleagues. Um, it shows that legal equality is not enough. Mm. So to go back to your question, I think it is really important that we keep up the fight and don't assume that because formal status has been won that everything's going to be fine. Yeah. You know, today in Britain we have ended all the major anti-gay laws. There are still some small anomalies. Uh, for example, religious institutions have a get-out. They're exempt from key aspects of equality law. They are allowed to discriminate in housing, education, employment, and so on, if they can demonstrate that this is, quote, necessary to preserve their religious ethos. Now, why should religious organizations, and this is not just places of worship, but it's also faith-run schools, hospitals, nursing homes, shelters for the homeless, they're all allowed under exemptions in the equality laws to discriminate against LGBT plus people in certain circumstances. Why should they have that exemption which applies to no one else? The limitations of the equality focus, I think, are quite clear. Um, and it, because what it does, it creates legal equality and a legal acceptance, but leaves often leaves unquestioned the kind of deeper rooted problems, whether it's facing blacks in America or gays in other Western countries or, or women, in fact. Yeah, but we, we, we have today, you know, the statistic which shows that one third of all LGBT plus people in Britain have been victims of homophobic, biophobic or transphobic hate crime. Mm. One third, even today, um, 45% of young LGBT pupils say that they've been bullied or harassed at school. 45%. The levels of uh, depression, anxiety, suicide or attempted suicide is many times higher in the LGBT plus community compared to the wider population. So these are all wake-up calls. You know, the battle is not over. Uh, I wanted to ask you just on that, on the question of the changing nature of, of gay rights campaigning, I wanted to ask you if you could give us a bit of a, uh, a taste of what it might have been like in the early 1970s in particular, because you describe how um, gay people today still face certain problems, of course, but I think it would be difficult for many people today to imagine how hard it was in 1972 or, or 1973 or 1974 to, you know, for gay men to take to the streets dressed as nuns, for example, which one wing of the Gay Liberation Front did, um, or to, you know, parade that kind of sexuality pride, which is now something that we take for granted that people will do that every year and that corporates will sponsor them in there as they do it. But I think back then it's difficult for people to conceive of the barriers you may have faced as a consequence of that. So can you describe what life was like in London in the early 1970s for someone who was a radical queer rights campaigner? Well, back then, of course, large aspects of gay male life were still criminal mm. and the police, you know, would raid bars and clubs, parks, toilets. Um, they'd send in argent provocateurs to incite gay men to commit offences and then arrest them. Um 
you know, it was not uncommon for gay venues to have to pay off the police right. to survive. You know, the, I can remember a, the raid on the Father Redcap pub in Camberwell in the 1970s where uh, gay men were arrested and the owner was arrested for dancing, for dancing together, not having sex together, just dancing together. You know, there was a raid in Manchester where the in the 80s where the police stormed in in full rubber gear and gloves because their assumption was that all gay men have HIV and that they could get HIV from simply touching a gay person. But in the 1970s, I think that the predominant key indicators of the state of homophobia were, for example, that the medical and psychiatric professions still designated homosexuality yeah. as an illness mm. and transgenderism as well, um, and that you know they advocated the curing of homosexuality via electric shock or nausea-inducing drugs. There were no openly gay people at all in public life. You know, people uh, who were discovered to be gay, whether they be police officers, um, military personnel, entertainers, whatever, they were outed and shamed and disgraced by the tabloid press. Queer bashing violence was rampant and unchecked. The police were not interested. The police wanted to arrest us for consenting victimless behaviour, but they weren't interested in protecting us against the very grave, serious violence and even murders that were taking place in that era. So, you know, for a young LGBT plus person growing up in the 1970s, there were no positive role, role models. Right. There were just a handful of counselling organisations which had no money to advertise their services, so hardly anybody knew about them. In school, LGBT plus kids got no validation. A lot of gay people were suffered from extreme depression, anxiety and mental ill health because of this culture of homophobia that was just absolutely rampant. Mm. You, you mentioned there one of the most shocking things um, to modern audiences about um, the treatment of homosexuality in the in the early 1970s, which was the idea that it was a, an illness, a mental illness. And I think it was categorized as such until 1972 by the American Diagnostic. 73. 73, which a lot of people will uh, kind of find quite alarming. But one thing I, that, that brings me on to another issue that I wanted to ask you about, which is an issue on which I think you may have... Can I, can I just explain to people what actually was involved? Please do. You know, so it's almost incredible to believe that right up until the mid-1970s in the UK, there were leading psychiatrists and medical practitioners mm. who advocated electric shock aversion therapy to cure homosexuality. Um, this therapy involves strapping a gay man into a chair, wiring him up with electrodes, and then showing him images of naked or partially clothed men and giving him electric shocks. The theory was that this would create an aversion to same-sex desire. Of course, it was complete bonkers. <laughs> um, but it was also scarily reminiscent of the Nazi program for the eradication of homosexuality. And this was being funded by the British taxpayer on the National Health Service. It's an absolute mm -hmm. scandal. And you think about it, these methods were advocated by leading psychiatrists and psychologists such as Professor Hans Eysenck, who was in the early 1970s one of the world's most famous psychologists. Mm. He saw nothing wrong with saying that gay and bisexual men should be subjected to these barbaric, inhumane methods, mm. which did not work, but often made 
uh, gay and bisexual men impotent and unable to have sexual or emotional relationships. Mm. That is fascinating and deeply disturbing. And nothing like that happens now in the West, um, which is great. Everyone agrees that's great. But there's one thing I wanted to ask you about, which is an issue on which I think you may have changed your mind or, or, or tempered your opinion to a certain extent, which is the contemporary idea of, of the gay gene or the idea, you know, the Lady Gaga view of that you are born this way. Um, because it has, it does sometimes strike me that there is a similarity, not necessarily in outcome, but in, um, intent between those earlier views of homosexuality as a kind of ingrained thing that could be medicalized out of you or tortured out of you and the more contemporary trendy view of homosexuality as a genetic inheritance or a genetic trait, uh, you know, the idea that it's kind of hardwired into you from birth. Do, do you see in the gay gene discussion, do you see a sense of fatalism amongst gay rights activists and maybe even a sense of, of defensiveness as if they're saying we can't help being like this so please don't treat us too badly yeah there is a sense of patronization and condescension about that view yeah uh, but in my opinion it doesn't matter whether you're born or made gay you know gay people have human rights yeah but having said that you are right i have tempered my view based on the scientific evidence mm. in the days of the gay liberation front I very much took the Freudian view that everybody's born with a bisexual potential. They may not realise it, but everybody has that potential within them and that culture and nurture and peer pressure and so on are major, major factors. Since then, there's been a whole series of scientific projects which have suggested that genes or genetic inheritance probably accounts for about half of our sexual orientation, whether it be heterosexual or homosexual, and that hormonal influences in the womb are another very significant factor. So the evidence is very, very clear. On, on that basis, I would say that the major factors determining sexual orientation appear to be genetic and hormonal in the womb. But this still allows some degree of otherness mm. or other explanations for some instances of homosexual or same-sex desire. You've previously said, and I think this is the view that you've tempered in the light of recent discoveries or, and arguments, that you've recently said that an, an influence is not the same as a cause. And therefore, the fact that genes and hormonal um, activity influences sexuality doesn't mean it necessarily causes it. And Or is not the total cause or, not the, total or, or the whole cause. cause. Yes. Yeah. And it, it strikes me that... Um, there's almost a kind of taboo now against arguing that there might be some element of fluidity or flexibility or, worst of all, some element of choice within the realm of sexuality, which is not to argue that it's entirely a choice and you could switch it off by clicking your fingers. But it does strike me that there is this, um, the, the reliance on the gay gene argument seems to downplay entirely in a way that is is possibly counterproductive, the idea that there is a, a kind of a human consciousness element to sexuality. Would you agree? Well, I, I never make the argument, we're born this way, so leave us alone. Yeah. That, that's far too defensive and not factually true. But what I would say is that, as I said, you know, hormonal and genetic influences do appear to be very significant, mm. probably a major factor, mm. but they're not the whole explanation. And at the end of the day, 
Um, you know, whether people choose to be gay or feel they're made gay, it's irrelevant to the human rights, dignity and respect that LGBT plus people deserve. Yeah. Um, having said that, I, I think we can see some signs already that in a more enlightened liberal society, as homophobia declines, more and more people are open to experiencing same-sex desire. So the Observer poll has shown that I think it's roughly 23% of 16 to 24-year-olds have had a same-sex experience. And the same age demographic, when polled by YouGov more recently, uh, we've found that 49% have said they would not describe themselves as 100% heterosexual. Right. So this does indicate a degree of openness, um, a degree of recognition that hetero and homo are not two mutually exclusive desires mm. and that probably a lot more people are or will be bisexual, uh, at least for certain periods of their lives, if we continue to you know, get rid of the vestiges of homophobic prejudice and discrimination. Yeah, which at least suggests that there is a, a social dynamic and a cultural dynamic and an individual dynamic alongside the other influences that you described. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I was thinking of the um, American actress Cynthia Nixon, who got into a huge amount of trouble when she said that the reason she's currently in a lesbian relationship and has been for quite a long time is because she decided she chose to be in one and she caused a huge amount of blowback. But I guess it differs for different people. Well, can I just respond to that? I mean, mm. you could say that she didn't actually choose it as in the sense of, you know, she was 100% straight and then became yeah. lesbian. Um, it goes back to the old Freudian idea you know, for all his faults, you know, Freud's uh, argument about the constitutional bisexuality of all human beings, that I think is probably the the underlying, right. you know, basis of, of of these social and cultural changes. It's not that people can switch sexual right. orientations like snapping their fingers. It's that a lot of people, many more people than we have previously suspected, have these desires within them, both LGBT and straight. Mm. And that in the right socially accepting atmosphere, more people come to recognise that and perhaps act upon it. I want to ask you about two things now. You've never shied away from controversy, or certainly you've accidentally found yourself embroiled in controversy. Um, and not you, accidentally, no, no, not always accidentally, <laughs> quite deliberately. <laughs> and um, you do get you have over the years over the decades invited quite a lot of flack and abuse and persecution as well and i want to talk about two instances of that in particular that firstly 1983 and the bermondsey by-election which to people of my generation is a is a very vague memory but we do know of it and it has stamped its mark on british political history as one of the most shameful uh, election campaigns of the 20th century in the UK. Um, so you stood for the Labour Party, you were standing against the Liberal Democrat, uh, Simon Hughes, and you in particular were subjected to a pretty relentless campaign of homophobia um, from the media, from political activists, from Lib Dems, from other sections of the political sphere. Uh, I, I wondered if you could firstly describe to us some of the things that happened, but also 
I want I wanted to ask you if you thought that was really the dying embers of the old classic homophobia, and after that awful election campaign, things kind of started to change, perhaps slowly. First of all, when I stood in Bermondsey as a left-wing Labour candidate, yeah, I was demonised because I was gay and supporting gay rights. I was also demonised because I was born in Australia. There was incredible xenophobia yeah. and crypto-racism. And, of course, I was demonised as, quote, Red Pete. But just look <laughs> at the policies I advocated, the extremist policies that were widely denounced, even by some people in the Labour Party. I argued for a national minimum wage, for a negotiated political settlement in Northern Ireland, mm. for a comprehensive equality law to protect everyone against discrimination. These are now mainstream. Stuff. These are now mainstream. <laughs> but at the time, these were regarded as extremists. Yeah. And, you know, the amount of hate mail and death threats I got. I mean, I had dozens of death threats. I was physically assaulted over 150 times while out canvassing, including being punched, kicked, spat at. Uh, I, I, even there were two attempts to run me down in a car. I had bricks and bottles through my flat window. Uh, it was like living through a low-level civil war. Mm. And I sort of became, not by intention or design, but you know, I became sort of a kicking boy. Um, I symbolised for those who wanted to do down Labour, and particularly do down the Labour left, I was, I was the g- guy to go for. I became a magnet for homophobes all over the country. You know, the level of, of, of violence and hatred was just unbelievable. Mm. Nothing had prepared me or anyone for what uh, happened during that campaign. Mm. And perhaps not surprisingly, I lost. I lost uh, what had been a Labour seat. Mm. And I'm very distressed and even ashamed of that even to this day. But, you know, I had so much against me. I had I had four fascist candidates, um, the Lib Dems, who conducted a disgraceful, yep. often homophobic campaign. And then, of course, um, the sitting or previous Labour MP, Bob Mellish, and the leader of Solid Council, John O'Grady, also conducted a, a pretty outrageous campaign, playing not just on homophobia, but claiming that my campaign to defend working class people against property developers and speculators was all fiction and lies. Right. Yet after the by-election, everything I predicted happened. You know, the local community was carved up with luxury flats and office blocks left, right and centre. The local community got very little. That will sound shocking to many younger listeners. My understanding of this has always been that it was a very shocking campaign, very disturbing campaign, but it also proved quite transformational because I think to a lot of people, not simply ordinary people and voters, but also to figures in the establishment, it was almost like a tipping point. And Simon Hughes, for example, has come out much later and said, it was really nasty. What happened to Peter? Really bad stuff. Um, others have reflected on it and realized that it was a pretty awful affair. And it does seem, I think, in the history of uh, gay rights in the United Kingdom, I think it is a bit of a turning point because it's it's almost after 1983 and the Bermondsey by-election and the, and the slow realisation that takes place as a consequence of some of that stuff that there are some of the more modern changes. So do you think out of this low-level civil war, something positive might have come out of it? Undoubtedly. I think there was widespread media and public revulsion after the by-election. Once I'd lost, people suddenly came to their senses and looked back (laughs) and thought, gosh, is this Britain? Is this democratic Britain? Could this be happening in an election in Britain in the 20th century? 
And I think that reaction meant that when Chris Smith came out um, just a year later, the public and media reaction was totally different. People didn't want to go down the Bermondsey Road and didn't want a repeat of that. And people felt really, I suppose, shamed and embarrassed about the way they'd often behaved. And so Chris got, you know, a, a quite an easy ride when he came out and so did other politicians subsequently. Mm. So, yeah, I think it was a turning point. And, of course, it, it did prompt the Labour Party to eventually officially embrace LGBT equality for mm. the very first time. Mm. And then I want to fast forward to the treatment of you as a controversial figure in more recent times. Now, thankfully, you haven't suffered anything like you did in 1983. But even among some sections of the left and even among some sections of the identitarian left, you are still considered a controversial figure, although for different reasons. So for example, there was the infamous case of a student union officer refusing to share a platform with you on the basis that you were racist and transphobic and these kind of jumped up accusations. And and when, when she was questioned, she couldn't provide a single no, jot of evidence. None at all. And then of course, um, the fact that you have called out and criticised Jeremy Corbyn for associating with hardcore Islamists and the fact that you have been one of the relatively small number of people who've tried to raise awareness about um, the issue of Islamist grooming gangs, for example, and the the role that a kind of pretty rigid, homophobic, sexist, religious view can play in society, all those things mean that people often refer to you wrongly, of course, as Islamophobic. So I wonder if there's a possibility that in the current climate, we're seeing a repeat of the intolerance that existed in the 1980s, but sometimes it's coming from those who would describe themselves as, as left-wing. You're right. I mean, it is quite scary and very depressing that mm. there are some people on the left who have basically taken a right-wing view yeah. <laughs> that um, you know certain communities have to be kowtowed to um, regardless of what their stand is. And, you know, we shouldn't generalise, obviously, about the Muslim community mm -hmm. or any other community. But the fact is that levels of understanding and acceptance of LGBT rights are much less in that community, and LGBT plus Muslims are a marginalised and persecuted minority within their own community. That needs to be said. And I don't think that it's Islamophobic or anti-Muslim to call out that kind of injustice. Mm. Uh, to not call it out is to treat Muslim people with a condescending, patronising view, exactly. infantilising them as if they are not able to be, you know, full-rounded, you know, comprehensive human beings. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you know I, I'm, I'm constantly uh, shocked that women's rights campaigners or some women's rights campaigners you very rarely speak out against the kinds of gross abuses of women in Muslim-majority countries or indeed within sections of our own Muslim community in the UK. Yeah. Again, we're not demonising all Muslims. We're not attacking Muslim people. We're attacking discrimination and prejudice, which is, you know, very, very clear uh, and very, very upfront. And, you know, the left would never hesitate to call out the right if it was indulging in similar sort of behaviour and excuses and, you know, ideas and prejudices. But it seems to be that when minority communities engage in it, uh, this is, you know, a red line. And I would say the same thing about, you know, 
LGBT plus people. If if an LGBT plus person is racist or misogynistic, yeah. I'll call them out. Yeah. I won't say because they're LGBT, <laughs> they're beyond criticism or they should be given a free ride or a free pass because they're a persecuted minority. I'd say no. And, you know, this is also another example. People on the left will call out racism in the LGBT plus community. They very rarely call out homophobia in the Muslim community. Right. And that's double standards. Yeah. And double standards... Uh, inconsistencies like that do the left great damage. The public can see through it. And this is one of the reasons why the left is not as successful yeah. a- as it should be. Because, you know, there are double standards. You know, people will, will, will call out the United States for its, you know, manifest crimes around the world, but less so Russia or, or Syria or Zimbabwe or whatever. I think that's very well put. And I think it's absolutely right that the prejudice is, is, actually among those who refuse to criticize sections of the Muslim community, not the whole Muslim community, because they presume that they are too fragile or they need special treatment or they can't possibly cope with the same rigorous analysis and criticism that you would apply to every other community. That strikes me as a far more racist idea than criticizing bad behavior within sections of that community. I wanted to ask you whether this question and this issue has influenced your um, view of Jeremy Corbyn. So you were a supporter of Corbyn's leadership campaign in the in 2015. I think you're still generally supportive of Corbyn, but you have also criticised him for associating with, you know, hard right Islamists and anti-Semitic forces. And do you think one of the problems on the left today is? I don't know, maybe they're so influenced by the oppression Olympics or this notion that, you you know, you can never possibly criticise non-white communities, that they end up associating with what we could call backward elements from those communities. I think there's a tendency on the left to be motivated globally or internationally by hatred of the United States and all it stands for. Mm. And a lot of that is totally justified. <laughs> I share it. Mm. But... You cannot base a progressive left-wing politics on anti-Americanism. And it leads many on the left to give a free pass to Russia, Iran, uh, Assad, and in Syria, and so on. You know, if you're a left-wing socialist, an internationalist, you have to stand with oppressed people everywhere. And the idea that just because Iran might be under threat of attack doesn't mean to say you pull your punches yeah. when they jail 800 trade unionists in one single night when they torture women's rights activists, um, religious and ethnic minorities, and LGBT plus people. Mm. You know, these double standards just are to the discredit of the left. Yeah. And when it comes to Jeremy Corbyn, I mean, if the choice is between Boris Johnson and Jeremy Corbyn, it's a no-brainer. Jeremy Corbyn, absolutely. And I think his domestic programme, it's not as radical as I would like, but it's, mm. it's in the right direction and it's going to improve things much. I think internationally... I think he has failed seriously on a number of issues. I mean, I was absolutely shocked that when um, Assad and Putin were bombing Aleppo, Jeremy Corbyn would not agree to go to Parliament to demand a vote on humanitarian aid of fuel, medicine and food Mm. to the besieged civilians in Aleppo. That was just so, so shocking. And he'd been asked to do so by Syrian democratic and left-wingers. Um, now, if you can't provide, if you won't even take an active stand mm. 
and, and try and get humanitarian aid to civilians under attack. I mean, how can you call yourself a socialist or an internationalist? Mm. Um, now of course he, he, he did make a tokenistic, you know, statement about uh, opposing the bombing, but he didn't actually do anything. Mm. And we measure politicians by what they do, not what they say. You know, on Nicaragua, Jeremy Corbyn has spoken over 200 times in Parliament on Nicaragua. As far as I know, he's never once condemned the mass human rights abuses of the last two years under the Ortega regime, which is a total betrayal yeah. of... Ortega has totally betrayed the Sandinista revolution. Yeah. He has become the oppressor of his own people. And for Jeremy Corbyn not to speak out is just unbelievable and appalling. On Venezuela, you know, I supported many of the ideals that Chavez was working for and, and achieved. You know, in the early days, lots of positive things were done. But very quickly, uh, and certainly in recent years, uh, that revolution has turned on its head. Mm -hmm. uh, the Maduro regime is an, a, a clearly anti-working class regime, which is crushing the poor. Poor people are starving. They can't get medicine or food. Um, they're leaving the country in millions. What kind of socialism is that? And of course, there's been the state violence, the political prisoners that are being held in Venezuela's jails, the shooting dead of peaceful protesters. Jeremy Corbyn's response was to do a Donald Trump. He said, I condemn all violence. The violence was predominantly yeah. and overwhelmingly state-sanctioned by the Maduro regime. For a socialist not to be able to condemn that, as, for example, Nam Chomsky has, I think is appalling. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I, I've known Jeremy for four decades. He's done so much good work as a backbencher. He's championed so many underrepresented and marginalized causes. I salute him on that. But I think he has lost the plot on some issues. And I think it's doing his reputation and his electability a great deal of damage. Yeah. If we go beyond, you know, the way the anti-Semitism issue has been handled is just, I'm just incredulous that you know, it's, it's just, it's, it, if you told me this would be the way he would respond, I would have not believed you five or six years ago. Mm. The international definition of anti-Semitism, I, as a strong supporter of the Palestinians, had no problem with that definition. Why did the Leopold fuss and faff and, you know, cause so much consternation over that? And on Brexit, Jeremy has adopted a position of trying to please everyone and end up pleasing no one. Labour comes across today as a deeply sectarian party. They think they're the only progressive party. They dismiss all others. Um, we know that the only sure way to defeat the Tories and the Brexit party is to build a progressive alliance of the parties that oppose those two. We know that in Richmond, in the borough elections last year, Labour refused to join a progressive alliance with the Lib Dems and Greens, but the Greens and Lib Dems together ousted loads of Tory councillors. We could do that nationally, but Labour is refusing because it is so arrogant, so sectarian. The history of progressive social change in this country, in every country, is building broad progressive alliances. Mm. So there are many countries, left of centre parties from closer to the middle to the far left, will join together to unite to defeat the right. That's the way we should be doing it here in Britain. If we had done that, you know, we wouldn't have had Theresa May or before her David Cameron 
and now Boris Johnson in power. I find it incredibly depressing that although there's a great grass movement for proportional representation in the Labour Party, the leadership and the party officially Mm. is still wedded to first past the post. That system is not compatible with democracy. Under first past the post, no governing party in Britain has won a majority of the popular vote since 1931. Every single government, including the Thatcher landslide of 1983 and Tony Blair's landslide of 1997, Mm. was based on a minority, around about 42-43% of the vote. That is not democracy. Mm. And if we'd had a system of PR, we probably wouldn't have had Thatcher in power with all the destruction that entailed. Yet Labour is so full of themselves, they think it's either us Mm. or no one. It's either us or the Tories. And they don't care if they lose. Mm. They don't care if the Tories get back in and destroy the country because their agenda is all about me, 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 me. Mm. Labour only, Labour only, Labour only. That is just totally incompatible with progressive left-wing politics. You're listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. Subscribe now so that you never miss an episode. And it would be great if you could give us a rating and maybe even a review. That is a really good way to help new listeners discover the show. So one thing I want to ask you is where you stand on the question of identity politics more broadly. So it's arguable that gay rights activism is a form of identity politics because it's a politics based on an identity of a group. Um, But also identity politics has, in recent years, it strikes me, taken on a more problematic form and become a quite divisive ideology in some instances. So what's your general view of identity politics? I think identity politics came into being as a reaction to exclusion. The fact that the rights of women, black people, LGBTs and others were not being addressed, forced those communities to assert their own identity and their own claim for justice. So it was a necessary reaction Mm. to that exclusion from the mainstream political discourse. Where I think identity politics is in danger is the way in which it often results in the balkanization yeah. of the human rights movement, where each community is fighting their own isolated battle concerned solely with their agenda yeah. to the exclusion of all others. I want to see a coming together of identity politics with a politics that strives to advance our common humanity. Uh, and that means working together, showing solidarity not fighting separate battles, but wherever possible, fighting joint battles for our common liberation. So on that issue, I wanted to ask you about one of the most controversial identity politics topics of our time, which is the issue of TERFs, so-called TERFs, trans-exclusionary radical feminists, which sounds like a descriptive term, but is often a very pejorative term for feminists who don't accept that trans women are real women. Um, and this gives rise to a whole lot of arguing and conflict and tension and protests and in some cases even violence. I want to, uh, you obviously 
are a long-standing supporter of transgender rights, one of the earliest supporters of transgender rights. Um, but I wondered if you could tell us where you fall in that particular issue, the question of whether people who were born male ought to have the right to join, for example, an all-women shortlist in political campaigning, whether they should be able to take part in what were traditionally considered to be women's sports. I mean, I do think, uh, following on from what you've just said about the balkanization, I do think this points to one of the most interesting and troublesome conflicts in the identity arena now. And I wonder how you would navigate that question. I think those who are critical of trans people have a very narrow, simplistic view of gender. They seem to reduce gender to genitals. Mm. And of course, gender is about much more than that. It's about genes and hormones. It's about the capacity for reproduction. It's about brain structures. The newest research suggests that the brain structures of trans people are different. And this means that they are not deluded or imagining things when they say that they're really a woman or really a man. This is rooted in a very specific biological basis that manifests it through brains. Now, I don't think that a lot of transcritical feminists seem prepared to accept that. Uh, in the early 1970s, the feminist movement argued that biology is not destiny. Today, some feminists seem to argue that biology is destiny. And I think that, you know, the whole basis of human culture and civilization has been to uh, challenge the nature biological argument and look at ways in which we can refashion society and personal relations and identities um, to ensure the liberation of people. Um, at the end of the day, I think there is no harm in acknowledging that some people identify as trans um, in the overwhelming majority of cases, I believe that's totally sincere and genuine. I believe they deserve respect. And I don't see how that diminishes the rights of, you know, what we might call biological women. You know, at the end of the day, if you believe in a society where we all live and let live, then respecting difference, accepting difference is a fundamental part of that. And given the small number of trans people there are in our society, I cannot see how they can possibly be a threat to the rights of women. Now, having said that, I understand that some women are concerned about the implications. So I've heard tell that, you know, uh, it'd be very wrong for a trans person to be in a women's group or a, a rape crisis group. But I've also met workers in those institutions who say they've accepted trans people for years and neither they or, nor their women clients have any problem. In the case of prisons, I totally agree that if, if, if a trans woman who was previously designated a man has a history of sexual or domestic violence against women, uh, they should probably not be put in a women's prison or should be put in a special segregation unit. I don't think they should just be put in the prison like that, because even if they don't commit a crime against women, uh, there are women in that prison who may well fear or be in fear that they might commit a crime. 
Now, of course, no one should be punished for what they might do, but I think it's reasonable to take steps to ensure that women are protected from potential predators or violent assailants. You know, when it comes to, you know, other issues, my starting point in this debate is to recognise that trans people face incredible levels of prejudice, discrimination and violence, including murders, and that we have to do everything in our power to support that community and to stop the hatred that is visited upon them. That is the starting point. What depresses me is that many of the critics of the trans community come at it from an assumption that every trans person is a threat, Mm. that trans people are intrinsically violent or menacing, that they have to be quarantined and controlled, uh, they have to be suppressed in order to protect women. I don't buy that for one moment. You know, if you look at the concerns of some feminists about the potential violence or sexual assault that they might face from some trans woman, first of all, it's a tiny, tiny, tiny minority. And to make a policy based upon the bad deeds of a handful is so, so wrong. You know, we don't say that because um, some gay people are serial killers, that all gay people are a threat and menace to society and they should be quarantined and, you know, kept away from the rest of the community. Mm -hmm. It depresses me that so many trans critical feminists seem to take that view that demonises trans people in a way that they would never, ever dare about any other community. So my final question is on freedom of speech. One of the, um, which follows on, in fact, from some of the kind of identity politics discussions and the question of um, whether there are certain things you shouldn't say or certain things that should be censored in order to protect minority groups and so on. One of the most interesting pieces you've written recently was about the Ashes Bakery controversy, where the bakery in Northern Ireland was threatened with punishment for refusing to make a cake for a same-sex wedding. Um, And you wrote about changing your mind in relation to this case and recognising the need for freedom of conscience, even for people with whom you would disagree and with whom many people would disagree. And you will know there have been numerous controversies in recent years on campuses where feminists who are overly, apparently overly critical of Islam have been no platformed. Transcritical feminists have been no platformed. Um, other people have been no platformed for holding particular views. So I wonder just as a final thought, if you could say uh, what your view on freedom of speech is at the moment and why you would consider it freedom of conscience and freedom of speech to be pretty important things. First of all, let me say Ashes was not threatened with penalisation because they refused to bake a cake for a gay wedding. It was because they refused to put a message on the cake, uh, support gay marriage. Yes. So it was the idea, not the service for Mm. a particular individual. Um, Ashes did not discriminate against anyone because of their sexuality. They did not refuse to serve Gareth Lee because he was gay. Mm. They simply refused to put that message on the cake because they disagreed with it. Now, I disagree with them and wish they had put the message on the cake, but I think in a free society, no one should be compelled to support a message with which they disagree. Uh, In the same way, I would say that a gay baker should not be forced to make a cake with the message opposing same-sex marriage, or a, a Jewish printer should not be forced to publish a book advocating Holocaust denial 
or a Muslim printer should not be forced to publish a book with the cartoons of Muhammad. Mm. I think this is an issue of freedom of expression and the right to not express views or help express views or facilitate views with which one has a conscientious objection. Um, on the wider issue of free speech, I think it is obviously one of the most important and precious of all human rights. I mean, people went to prison and some were even executed for exercising their freedom of speech in, in centuries past. I think there are only three legitimate grounds for restricting free speech. First, if someone makes false damaging allegations, such as that X is a paedophile, a rapist, a tax fraudster, or so on. Uh, second, if they engage in threats, menaces, or harassment. And thirdly, if they incite violence. I think in those three instances, free speech can be legitimately limited because if you allow it, it actually closes down free speech because the people being targeted get intimidated and can no longer feel safe and comfortable participating in the public debate. But having said that, I don't think there's any right to not be offended. Mm. You know, causing offence, you know, has been a hallmark of a social advance. Mm. You know, some of the greatest minds in history have caused great offence. Galileo Galilei, uh, Karl Marx, Sigmund Freud, Charles Darwin, Richard Dawkins. They've all caused offence. Mm. But thank heavens in a free society, they've been able to have their voice heard and we can accept or reject it. But I don't think we should say, just because you offended me, you should be shut down or criminalised. Peter Tatchell, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. We'll be back with another guest and more discussion. Don't forget to subscribe, and in the meantime, keep reading Spiked at www.spiked-online.com.